you to open your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 12. We're going to be looking this morning at this short postscript that comes at the end of Daniel 12. There's a, a PS at the end of this long book uh, that Daniel was moved by the Spirit of God to record for us. Daniel chapter 12. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, Dr. David Zietzma um, preached to us and gave, a, I think, a wonderful um, uh, wrap-up. He kind of captured the whole theme of this incredible book and even the title of his message, Living as Strangers and Longing for Home, I think captured what we see throughout the book of Daniel. Uh, in our studies, we have uh, learned, we've discovered that there are really two parts to this, this book. The, the first part of Daniel is the, is the historical part, and here in the history portion of the book, we have recorded for us uh, all of the personal experiences of Daniel and those who were with him. Uh, we read about him being taken into captivity, into exile as a teenager. Um, we discover that he was appointed, uh, conscripted really, to, to serve in the court, in the Babylonian court as a servant to the king. We read in the first history part of the book about his unwavering dedication to the true and living God. We're all familiar with the, the story of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den because of his devotion to the living God. Daniel tells us about his ability, uh, certainly gifted by the Spirit, to interpret dreams, and God used him in an incredible way. And in that historical portion of the book, the thing that really stands out for all of us is his example. Here was a man who was an example of fidelity, an example of devotion and holiness before God. He lived the gospel surrounded by a culture that was antagonistic to his faith. And so we get helpful insights as to how we are to live as strangers in this present world. As our hearts are really set and long for a better land. That's the historical part. The second part of the book is the prophetic part. It's the, book, it's the part of the book where there are all kinds of visions. Apocalyptic imagery is used, which, which startles us a bit because we're not used to, to this type of uh, literature. Visions about the future. Visions that cast the future in the light of, of beasts that come out of seas and animals and creatures. And in these visions, Daniel basically, for the most part, gives prophetic word about the next 400 to 500 years from his time up until the time of the coming, the first coming of Christ. But these visions go even beyond that. They go right up to the end of time itself before the coming, the final coming of the kingdom of God. And whereas in the first part of Daniel, we see Daniel as an example for us to follow, in the second part of the book, we are introduced to the unseen spiritual realities that are behind the scenes, the spiritual forces of wickedness and of good that are, that are in constant conflict and warfare with each other, and that these spiritual forces are really behind the unfolding drama of the history of our world. During our 21 days of prayer, I had an opportunity to go for several walks with one of our elders, and 
he told me repeatedly how that idea of the unseen realities had influenced his prayer life during those days and, and actually fueled his desire to continue to pray against those spiritual forces. Now we come to chapter 12, verse 5. It's a short passage. It's the shortest passage that I will deal with in all of Daniel up to this point in time. And as I said, it's a little bit of a postscript to everything that he writes. Now this is the end of this long vision. Remember the vision starts in chapter 10, goes all the way through to the end of chapter 12. It's the longest recorded vision in the book. It begins with Alexander the Great rising to power, spreading the Greek language and the Greek culture throughout the world at that time, right through North Africa, right into parts of Asia, right up to the nation of India. The rise of Greece and then the fall of Greece, how after Alexander's death, the, the, the kingdom of Greece is, is divided into four different parts and then over a period of many years out of one of the kingdoms that is left behind, there arises who the scripture calls, who Daniel refers to as a contemptible person. This is Antiochus, the one who would unleash a severe persecution upon the Jews when he would enter the temple itself and set up the abomination of desolation, sacrificing a pig in the worship of the Greek god Zeus. It's all here for us in this very, very long vision. But Daniel saw more than that. Daniel saw standing in the shadow of Antiochus another individual who would come in the future. There's a discernible shift in what he records for us, and we begin to see that in the shadow of Antiochus there stands someone more evil, who has a more depraved influence that is greater than Antiochus itself, and that there is a war that this, this individual who stands in the shadows, a a, a war that he will inflict upon God's people. And we saw that in the latter part of chapter 11. But if you look at chapter 12, verse 1, it says, there will be a time of distress, as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. This is what Daniel sees. Now, in this final scene of this long vision, which takes us all the way from Antiochus to the Antichrist at the end of time, Daniel now in verse 6 sees a man, and it's the same man he saw before. It's the man who he describes is clothed in linen, a man who is clothed in linen. And it says in verse 6 that he was above the waters, or above the waters of the river, okay? So he's suspended now over this river. It's the Tigris River. He's suspended over the river. We have a picture here of him sort of like hovering, like a, like, a, like a drone, hovering over the Tigris River. There are two other angels that are there, but the two angels are standing on either side of the banks of the river. Then I, Daniel, verse 5, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank of the river. It's an incredible scene. And the two angels who are standing on both of the banks of the river, their gaze is fixed upon the one who is hovering above the waters of the river. And it is to this man clothed in linen who is an an, an unnamed messenger angel of God that these two other angels direct a question. And it is a significant one at that. A significant question is asked. Verse 6, 
How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The English Standard Version of the Bible says, how long will it be until the end of these wonders? Until the end. And this is a question we always ask. It's a question that people have asked me many times. It's a question you've asked. I've asked it myself. How long until the end? We want to know when the end of time, the end of history is finally coming. We want to know all the things that are associated with the end time. Generations of Christians have asked this question over and over again. And what I want you to notice is that the question is singular. It is singular in nature. The angel does not ask, what will this thing be? It's not this thing, but it is these things. It's in plural. These astonishing things. So in one sense, the angel is asking everything about right from the time of Alexander the Great right through to the end of time at the Antichrist. How long will it be? When when is it going to happen? There's a, a question here even from chapter 12, verse 1, about the distress that is going to come, a distress unlike any other distress that has ever come on our planet before. And then chapter 12, verse 2, actually refers to multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth and they're going to awake to everlasting life. There is a a reference here to the resurrection at the end of time. So the question that's being asked covers this whole gamut of things right up until the final day of resurrection. And we know from other passages in God's word that the day of word that the day of resurrection is the day of the final return of Christ. So there, there's a lot to this question that is being asked for. It is not as simple as it seems. Be that as it may, the question is straightforward, and it is not an unfamiliar one because it was already asked in chapter eight of Daniel. Now it's directed to this this. Um, unnamed messenger angel, the man clothed in linen, and it's directed at him because clearly this angel, this man, has a superior position, a superior knowledge than the other angels on the sides of the bank of the river. Now, now this, this actually opens up to us a, a, some insight into the angelic realm itself. And you remember in 1 Peter, the apostle Peter talks about the prophets and how they wrote about the coming of Christ and the salvation which is to come into the world. But it says that the prophets didn't really understand the time in which this, this would happen, in which all of their predictions would be fulfilled. And Peter adds, even angels long to look into these things. In other words, the angels don't have a full understanding either. They don't have a full knowledge of all of the saving purposes of God. They're there at the the annunciation. They're there before the shepherds, and they say, to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But they didn't have that knowledge before that time. They long to look into these things, Peter tells us. Now, we need to underscore what is specifically asked here. What is specifically asked here is not when is this going to happen. The question actually is, how long will this go on happening until the final end? In other words, the angel is not asking, per se, for a date on a calendar Rather, he's asking about the longevity. How long is this thing going to go on for until it's finally over? 
And the response that comes from the man clothed in linen is the most grave moment in the whole of the book of Daniel because he answers. But before he gives the detail of it, a solemn oath is made. Look at verse 7. The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever. He lifts his right hand. He lifts his left hand. He is making a solemn oath. Now, we don't use the word oath very often today unless you go into a court of law where you have to swear an oath that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But an oath is like a vow. It's a, it's a sacred promise that is being made. In the sense of a vow, if we can think of a wedding for a moment, in a wedding itself, in the ceremony itself, the vow, the speaking of vows, is the most important part of the wedding ceremony. Listen, friends, all of the other stuff, many of you have gotten married this year or you're, you're going to be getting married soon. There's quite a few in our church this year. I don't know what's happening, but people are falling in love everywhere. <laughs> COVID has some positive things to it. But people are planning to get married, and the most important part of the wedding itself is the speaking of vows. Everything else in a wedding is pure aesthetics and cosmetics. Without the speaking of vows, everything else in the marriage ceremony is useless. It amounts to nothing. It is the speaking of vows, the one to the other, that makes a marriage, and that vow is binding for life. I take you to be my wife in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, hopefully richer than poorer, till death we part. It's binding. It's made by two people in the presence of witnesses and of God. Now, an oath is similar, but an oath is not something that is made between two individuals vowing themselves to each other. Rather, a vow or an oath is made to a court, to an institution. It carries with it a sense of gravity, a profound, a profound seriousness. And it does not ask, as it were, for, for God to be a witness to the event, sorry, for, for God to bless the event, but rather for God to witness. It invokes God to witness what is being said. So in the past, in the court of law, things have changed in our day and age, where people would put their hand, one hand, they probably put their left hand in the Bible, and they'd raise their right hand, right hand, I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The first oath that I ever made was when I was, I was a wolf cub when I was a kid. You guys know what wolf, wolf cubs are? They're like the little guys who are, you know, Boy Scout wannabes. And, uh, and I made a vow. I, I, remember, I remember this vow to this day. I promise to do my best to do my duty to God and the Queen. And to this day, Queen Elizabeth has a very important part in my heart. I made an oath. I raised my hand. I made that oath. Now here, notice, it's not just one hand that's being raised. He raises his right hand, he raises his left. What Daniel wants us to see, what Daniel wants us to understand is the seriousness of what is being said here. Two hands raised before Almighty God. Now the oath is marked, this grave, solemn oath is marked, first of all, by mystery. Notice what he says, verse 7. Verse 7, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. 
What's that mean? You see, there, there's something, there, there's, there's a ring of mystery in the words that are given here. It, it's, it's an enigmatic phrase, almost esoteric in nature. For a time, times, and half a time. Now, we've seen this expression before. The first reference to it is in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, where, where in reference to the Antichrist at the end of time, it says that God's people, God's saints, will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. Now, we're going to return to this phrase in a few minutes, but, but I, I just want to state this right away before we get into the, the nitty-gritty of what the phrase might mean. I, I want us to, to grasp this, that this phrase conveys an idea. And the idea is one that there's going to be many years, there are going to be many periods of times, a time, times, half a time. There's going to be a long period of time before all of this elapses. Before a long period of time is going to elapse before all of these things are fulfilled. The idea here is this isn't going to happen fast. This isn't immediate. There are periods of time in history. Daniel, the angel is saying to him, Daniel, understand this. It's a time, times, half a time. Daniel, it's way beyond your lifetime. Before all of this is going to happen, the oath is marked by mystery. Secondly, the oath is marked by certainty. Notice what he says. Again, verse 7. It will be for a time, times, and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all things will be completed. Mystery, but certainty as well. Two hands raised to God. He swears by him who lives forever. In essence, what he's saying, what God says will happen, will happen. Mystery and certainty. Now I want you to see the shocking and the puzzling answer that is revealed here as the angel continues to speak. Let's take the shocking part first. And the shocking part is in verse 7. We'd rather not this verse be in the Bible. It will be for a time, times, and half a time. Here's the shocking part. When the power of the holy people has finally been broken, all these things will be completed. Daniel is telling us here that there will be a time that will break God's people. A time, a times, a half a time, and during that time, times, and half a time, God's people are going to be broken. The word literally here is God's people will be shattered. It's a shocking statement that is made. Now, if you're looking for a fixed point in history by which you can determine that the end is incredibly near, this is what you're looking for. This is the answer to the question that is asked. What is going to happen? God's people are going to be shattered. Now, it's not what we expect to hear, it's certainly not what we want to hear. I mean, we want things to get better, right? We would love the church to come into one wonderful time of peace. 
And we would see the kingdom of God ushered in after that time of peace. I mean, isn't that really how you and I think? We, this is the, these are the things we hope for. These are the things we expect, that things are going to get better. Listen, you, you and I in this antagonistic age in which we live, we have lived so long with the notions of liberal democracy that we have imbibed over time the belief that little by little the world is going to get better, the world's going to get more tolerant, more accepting, more loving, that all of the, of the, of the trappings of, of, of humanity's primitive Neanderthal-type behaviors will evaporate into the air of the age of Aquarius where there will be love, harmony, and understanding. It's all a bunch of bunk. And if you don't believe that, well, look at what's happening in Europe today. What we see here, what Daniel sees here is shocking. It shocks us. I mean, we, we, we're, we're looking for evil finally to be broken and shattered. And Daniel receives the word, no, the holy people, the power of the holy people will be shattered. The word means literally shattered to pieces, like taking a beautiful piece of glass, like this, this vase up here at the front and throwing it to the ground and shatters, it shatters into hundreds of pieces. Now we know that the history of the church has been filled with persecution from the days of Jesus and the apostles right through to today. Persecution in wave upon wave throughout history has been unleashed upon the church. And Jesus said it would be so. He said, don't be surprised if they hate you because they hated me before they hated you. He said, you will be hated among all nations because of me. But friends, you can look back in the long history of the church of 2,000 years and, and, and even beyond that in terms of the people of, Is, of Israel who came before, before the church, and, and you, you can see in all these times and eras, as intense as the persecution was, as, as, as intense as the breaking of God's people was, it never, never was the true light of the church ever completely extinguished. But Daniel says, that's what's coming. That's what's coming. The church will be more severely broken, more severely persecuted than Israel was under Pharaoh in Egypt. The church will be more severely persecuted than Judah was under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. The church will be more severely in pers persecuted than the experience of the Jews when Antiochus Epiph Epiph Epiphanes came and committed the abomination of desolation. One commentator writes this. There's going to come a, a point in history when it appears that darkness has really won the day. It will seem as though the Antichrist is going to continue forever. It will seem as though the church has been entirely obliterated for there will no longer be any sign of it. I mentioned Daniel 7, verse 25. I'd like to put that verse on the screen again because this is an important verse, and this is one of the first prophecies about Antichrist. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered. Wouldn't you like, it to, wouldn't you like a period right there? Will be delivered. No, will be delivered into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. The holy people, one translation says, the saints will be handed over. 
Friends, the word that is used in this, li- in this line is the same phrase that is used of Jesus, that Jesus was handed over to Pontius Pilate. Jesus was handed over into the hands of the Jews who demanded that he be crucified. So if you're looking for a visible sign that the end is here, then this is it. When evil has done its worst, there will be the shattering of God's people. Then these events will be completed. Now, how do you respond to this? I mean, does this, does, does this fit all the, 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 the fiction prophecy books that you have read? How did Daniel respond? Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8. I heard, I heard, but I did not understand. I heard, but I did not understand. In our studies in Daniel, we've seen several instances where where Daniel has seen a vision or heard an angel speak, and and what, what he has heard and seen has completely overwhelmed him. He was shaken to the core. He was left exhausted. He fell onto his bed and collapsed. He was, he was pale. He was appalled by some of the things that he heard. I heard, but I did not understand. Listen, being a person of faith does not mean that you will not be devastated by things that happen. Being a person of faith does not mean that you will not be shaken to your core at some of the brutalities of life. Being a person, a man or a woman of faith does not mean that you will understand everything that happens. I heard, but I did not understand. The life of faith is lived in the realm of unanswered questions. I have four friends who are now with the Lord. All of them are, were missionaries. Don Grady was my best friend. I led him to Christ in 1974 when I was 18 years of age. Eleven years later, Don's life was taken from, from him. And at his funeral service in 1985, Arab World Ministries, the leader of the mission at that time, said, that Don was the most effective evangelist that the mission had who worked among Muslim peoples in North Africa. Another friend of mine was murdered by a radical Islamist in Mindanao, one of the islands of the, the, Phil, the Phil, Phil, Philippines. And then in 1999, Salah Adam, who was a man from the Sudan, who was converted to Christ when I preached one Sunday morning, went on to lead many people to Christ, and he and his wife, Shaleen, and their two kids, missionaries to Muslims, leading many of them to faith in Christ. In an act of terror, their lives were immediately snuffed out. And to this day, I ask why? I ask why? I'm a pastor. I mean, I've studied theology. I know the Bible, but... I still want to know why. Why would God allow not just my friends, but choice servants, effective evangelists to be taken? Why must it be like this? 
Verse 8, I heard, I don't understand. I don't understand. Then Daniel asks, what will the outcome of all this be? You see it there in verse 8? What will the outcome of all this be? What will the outcome be of, of the shattering of God's people? And an answer is given to him. He wants to know, are they going to be annihilated completely? And the answer comes to him in verse 9. And friends, the answer, I mean, he gives, he gives a partial answer, but the first part is not, not very soothing. It's, it's somewhat frustrating. He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Now, that's not a very satisfying answer. I heard, but I don't understand. I mean, why, God, are you even showing me this vision in the first place if I can't understand what it all means? In essence, what the angel says to him is, listen, Daniel, the, the full significance of all of this is going to be kept from you because it's not for you to know the words of the prophecy are sealed up until the time of the end. In other words, Daniel, this is not referring to your time. This is referring to a distant future. The prophecy here will only be understood as the prophecy is fulfilled in the unfolding drama of the history of the world. And then in verse 10, the latter part of verse, or the first part of verse 10, all of verse 10, he gives to him something of an answer. He says, Daniel, go your way. You're not going to understand all this, but, but here's one thing you do need to know. Many will be purified, made spotless, and refined. But the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand. But those who are wise will understand. This time will be a time where God purifies his people. Many, it says, will be purified, made spotless, and refined which seems to indicate here that there's going to be a turning to God during this time. And just as gold is refined in fire, so God's people in this shattering that is going to happen, in this intense persecution, this time of distress, as gold is refined by fire, they, they will be made like Christ. They will be conformed to Christ. They will be prepared by the Lord himself, for they are the wise ones. And while they do not have full understanding of all that is taking place, because they are not among the wicked who do not understand, they will be given by God the understanding of what God is doing in their lives. They will understand in some way, not fully, but in some way, the larger purpose that is taking place in their lives. And God will purify a people for himself so that when the bride finally stands before the Lord, the bride will be holy and pure without spot or any blemish at all. Now, I want you to see the next thing here. Because in verse 11, it, it gets a little weird, okay? I can't think of any better word to really describe it here because it's, it's really hard to understand. And, and listen, you know, I, I talked a few weeks ago about, about all the different people who have different opinions. Th there's about 100 different opinions on verse, verse 11. 
But I think what's being said in verse 11, from the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the, abom- the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Let me ne- read the next verse. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. <laughs> what does that mean? And I think what's happening here is that, that the angel is saying to Daniel that this future time will be like a past time. This future time will be like a past time because, because it's shocking about the shattering of the people of God. But here's the puzzling part that is given here. The puzzling part. Why then does the angel refer back to something that happened in the past? Because we know that it happened under Antiochus. That around between 167 and 164 BC, that Antiochus set up the abomination of desolation in Jerusalem at the temple, and there was, there was a severe persecution of the people of God at that time. So why now, when, when he's talking about the future, why does he bring back this, this, this thing that already happened in the past? And, and why the strange, enigmatic, wor- enigmatic words of 1,290 days, 1,335 days? See, we've returned to this mystery part of what is being said. Why refer to these things as days, and why the reference to the abomination? Because I think what's happening here is that this future time is going to be like the past time that happened under Antiochus. So what does the 1,290 days mean? And there are all kinds of interpretations of this. And the most satisfying one that I've heard was given by Dr. Don Carson in his book called Scandalous, which is a, a book on the death and resurrection of Christ. In that book, he points out that many cultures in the world, in their history, have a specific period of time that carries for that culture, that nation, a symbol-laden value. Now you think about that for a moment because we often talk today, we didn't over 20 years ago, but we do today, we talk about 9-11. You say 9-11 immediately. Like there, there's so much in those three letters or three, three numbers. It's one number, isn't it? 9-11. There's so much that is impacted there. Now, I'm sure in the future, the people of the Ukraine are always going to remember February 24, 2020, 2022. They're going to remember that day when the Russians came across their border. Carson makes reference to the Gettysburg Address of Abraham Lincoln. You remember during the Civil War? And those of you who are Americans here or you've studied American history, you remember these words. Four square and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now that line alone has sort of a mythical element to it. Carson says in Israel among the Jews, the period of time with corresponding mythic power was 1,290 days because this is a reference back to what happened between the years 167 and 164 BC when Antiochus came into Jerusalem, slaughtered the people there, set up the abomination of des- desolation in the temple, and there was a war that went on between his Syrian forces and the Jews, and it lasted for three and a half years. It lasted for 1,290 days. It was one of the most gross, grisly periods in the history of the Jews. 
As you read God's word, particularly when you come to the book of Revelation, you will discover that there are four synonymous expressions and they all relate to numbers. One of them is 42 months. What's 42 months? It's three and a half years. That's the other expression. What, what's, what's three and a half years? It's approximately 1,290 days. What's a time, times, and half a time? It's one year, two years, and half a year. It's three and a half years. You see, these are the synonymous expressions that are used, and they're all referring to the same thing. In other words, they all share the same significance. And if you were a first century Jew or a Christian, living in the days of the apostles, or even before the days of the apostles, in the days of Jesus, you would be reminded, whenever the words 1,290 days were used, you would be reminded immediately of Antiochus, and that phrase, 1,290 days, in your mind would be, that's a time of intense and immense suffering. It's the time of slaughter. It's the time where God is defied. It's the time of persecution. And after the end of those 1,290 days, after Antiochus, the Jews for the first time in 500 years became an independent nation. And because of that three and a half year period, there was this burning memory in their minds so that they, they came to think, they came to think of a time of severe testing and opposition and tri tribulation and distress was 1,290 days. It didn't matter how long the period was. That's the symbolic number that goes before it. And you see this particularly in Revelation chapter 12 and Revelation chapter 13. And you may want to go home and read those passages later today. So for Christians in the early church, for Jews in those days, this phrase would have been emblematic of a period of intense suffering however long before God comes and manifests himself in saving power. Now, why in one verse does it say times, times, and half a time, and then in another place it's 1,290 days? Well, the time, times, and, ta and, and, and half a time wants us to understand, conveying the idea that there are epics, there are periods, long periods of time. It's going to go on for a long period of time, but 1,290 days limits it to a 24-hour day, so to speak. It's as though God is saying, this is not immeasurable. This is not going to go on forever. There will be a limitation to the time. This time will be measured out by God. You remember the words of uh, Jesus? He said, if these days were not shortened, everyone would perish. But for God's elect, they will be shortened. I think that's what's being said here. So this future time will be like the past time. But now what are we to make of 1,335 days? I mean, he, he adds that, and, it, and it's, it's prefaced with a blessing. Verse 12, blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of 1,335 days. He adds another 45 days onto this. And I think what's being said here is that during this time, you and I are called to persevere. To persevere. The point is, be prepared to wait a little bit longer. Persevere, endure a little bit longer. Once you've waited and persevered and endured, just, just keep hanging in there a little bit longer. And so the message here in this postscript is this. It doesn't matter what hell throws at us. It doesn't matter what's coming in the future. We're being called to live by faith. We're being called to endure. 
We're being called to live for the kingdom of God. And a key verse here is from Revelation chapter 13, verse 10. In the midst of the prophecy that is given there, Revelation 13, 10, if we can put that up on the screen, please. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Now, that verse is the key, the key verse to understanding the middle part of the last book of God's word because there are beasts that come up out of the sea and there's all kinds of stuff that's coming at the people of God, but the message is this. I heard, I don't understand. Don't understand what it all means, but you can understand this. This calls for patient, faithful endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. We're to persevere in faith and trust. We are to plead that God will give us his help in the midst of our pain and suffering, whatever may come. But at the same time, we are to persevere in obedient trust, trusting God that his wisdom is greater than ours. And so I come now just to the final thing that I want to say to you. And these are the takeaway points, and they come just so very naturally out of verse 13. At this point, the angel gets kind of personal with Daniel. And again, he tells him to go his way. But here the angel gives to him. God, through the angel, gives to him some solid advice and special promises. And I think these are given not just to Daniel, but they're given to us. Look at, look at these words. As for you, Daniel, go your way. Go your way till the end. You will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. I can't think of more comforting words in all of God's word. Go your way. Go your way. It's as though he's saying, Daniel, I I have one final word for you. I want you to go your way until the end. What what does that mean? Just get out of here? Go your way? No. It means, Daniel, I want you to keep doing what you're doing. You're given a a vision of what's coming in the future, but Daniel, just go your way. Like, just keep on doing what you are doing. What was he doing? He was living the gospel. He was bearing witness to God in the Babylonian and the Persian courts. He was enduring affliction, and he was pointing people to the living God. And what was Daniel's way? Go your way. Well, Daniel's way was he separated himself from the world. He wouldn't eat the king's food. He wouldn't defile himself in any way. He maintained a holy life. He continued his godly devotion in prayer before God. He subjected himself willingly to the authorities and the powers that be, but he would not cross the line in obeying man when he knew he had to obey God. Daniel essentially did what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He was standing firm. He wasn't giving way. He was giving himself fully to the work of the Lord. And it's as though the angel is saying, saying to him, Daniel, you're, you're an old man now, but just keep on serving. Keep on praying. You sought me in the past as darkness closed in. Now continue to seek, to seek me. And next... You will rest. You will rest. You know what he's saying? Daniel, you're going to die. You're going to die. Don't be afraid of this. 
go your way, you will die. You will rest. And in death, you will discover that you will no longer be under the pressure of an antagonistic culture. Never again will you be in a lion's den. Never again will you have to live with the tension of trying to be holy in the midst of a corrupt and immoral world. Never again will you be persecuted and slandered by unbelievers. Never again will you be forced into exile for the rest of your life and forced to sing the songs of Zion in a strange land. Never again will you know injustice. Doesn't that sound good? Go your way. You will die. Keep doing what you're doing until you die. And then finally, you will rise. At the end of the days, there will be a day of resurrection. And when that resurrection comes, Daniel, you will receive your allotted inheritance. You will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And if you go back to verse 2 and 3, you will see that on that resurrection day, Daniel and you and I will shine like the stars forever. We will enter a new creation that is free of sin, free of the curse, free of persecution, free of suffering and pain, free of tears and of sorrow, and a new creation that is full of God, full of glory, and full of unspeakable joy. This is good, solid advice. And these are special promises that we should cling to. Would you stand, please? Oh God, we are grateful that throughout our life you are with us at all times, that there is nothing that falls upon our dial, upon our clock, upon our watch, upon the calendar days of our lives that has not been ordained by you. You are the son of love, Lord Jesus, and we thank you that you hold us in the palm of your hands and no one can pluck us out of your hands. We thank you that you sustain us. We thank you that no matter what happens to us in life, you are always there with us to the end of the age. Oh Lord, grant us grace, grant us grace for whatever might lie ahead in our future or in the future of those who come after us, that we will be faithful to you. For he who endures to the end, you said, shall be saved. Amen. Just a reminder that the cafe is open this morning. Also, we want you to be aware that next Sunday morning at 8.30, uh, we will have a pre-service time of prayer. There was uh, quite, a, uh, quite a large number of people actually expressing that they would like to see that time carried on. So that will be in the hallway over on the far side, room 225, every Sunday morning at 8.30. We trust that you're able to come early and join us for that. That would be great. Don't forget this special benevolent offering next Sunday morning. Uh, the Polish church is rallying to this great challenge that is before them to feed and clothe and house all these people who are coming. And we want to give the church there through our missionaries some additional financial resource so that they can help in this great time of need. I want to close this morning with a written prayer. This prayer was found in the, is found in the last page of the commentary that John Calvin wrote on Daniel. And uh, after he had um, explained what he believed the text meaning, meant, he closed his commentary with this prayer. Let this be our final prayer today. Grant, Almighty God, since you propose for us no other end 
than that of constant warfare during our whole life. And you subject us to many cares until we arrive at the goal of this temporary race course. Grant, I pray, that we may never grow fatigued. May we ever be armed and equipped for battle. And whatever the trials by which you prove us, may we never be found deficient. May we always aspire towards heaven with upright souls and strive with all our endeavors to attain to that blessed rest which is laid up for us in heaven. In Jesus Christ our Lord, amen.